Welcome, everyone. It's so good to have you here this morning. We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. I've recently read the book of Joshua. I hope you have, too. Maybe not recently, but I hope you've read it. Um, And I I was reminded reading through of uh, something that a professor in seminary uh, pointed out to me that I had not noticed. Uh, And that is, uh, in the opening verses of the book of Joshua, Moses is described as the servant of Yahweh. And Joshua is described as Moses' assistant. And we go through the whole book of Joshua with Joshua leading the people of Israel into the promised land. And it's only when we get to the end of the book of Joshua that Joshua is called the servant of Yahweh. Serving God is a key concept in the Bible. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. What does it mean to serve Christ? And what, is it, what exactly are we providing to him when we serve him? Isn't he omnipotent? What does he really need that we have to do for him? Uh, well, Jesus hopefully is going to help clear this up in the passage we're considering today. We're in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. And I've titled today's message, Service in Christ. Before I start reading, uh, let me uh, just mention that uh, what we have here is kind of a a second half of the Gospel of John. The first half, the first 12 chapters, uh, John has basically focused on showing how Jesus is presenting his message to the world. And uh, largely, even though there are people who have turned to him in faith, largely there's been a lot of rejection of that message. But he told us in the opening verses of his gospel that that's what happened. So, uh, you know, he said he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Uh, but to those who did receive him. So uh, clearly not everybody rejected him, but uh, the focus is very much on Jesus presenting his message to the world. Uh, but he, he shifts gears in chapter 13. When we get to chapter 13, all of a sudden, from here on out, John is going to group together uh, things that Jesus was teaching to his disciples. And I believe specifically he's focusing on some last-minute teaching that Jesus did in this final week in Jerusalem. And uh, likely this wasn't the kind of teaching that he had been repeating over and over throughout his public ministry, such as his parables and his teachings about the kingdom of God, things that as a good rabbi he was probably instructing his disciples to commit to memory. I think the other three gospels largely wrote their gospels based on that oral tradition uh, that was uh, instituted by Jesus himself with his disciples. But the things John is including in these final chapters were probably not part of that large body of things that they had carefully memorized during Jesus' ministry. So uh, I think John felt like this was important to include. And he wrote his gospel, I think, as a, as a complement to the gospels that had already been written. And he knew they were circulating. Uh, he, he felt like there were some things about Jesus' teaching that he wanted to make sure people had 
available to them. So in this final section of his gospel, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He turns his attention from the world at large to his disciples in particular. And he focuses on them and begins to prepare them for what is coming. He talks to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He talks to them talks to them about the new way they're going to be living life together uh, pretty soon the church is going to be born and they're going to be uh, the core of it so Jesus has some things to teach his disciples in preparation for what is coming and that's what we're diving into today uh, so I think it's very striking that uh, the event that John sees as the greatest way to introduce this final section in this gospel, uh, the event we're going to be looking at today. So let me start reading in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, having known that his hour to depart from this world to the Father had come, Jesus, having loved his own, those who were in the world, loved them to the end. And during dinner, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, that he would hand him over, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and to God he is returning. And I know I'm stopping halfway through a sentence, but I, uh, before we get to the next part, I want to talk about, uh, kind of unpack all of this. Um, so John tells us that this is happening before Passover. Now, most likely, this is the very evening in which they are celebrating Passover. And perhaps he means to indicate, this is probably Thursday evening, perhaps he means to indicate to us that Jesus does what he's about to do before they get to the dinner portion of the evening, before they actually break the bread and and do the whole Passover meal. Um, but uh, he, he, he prefaces for us what uh, is going on uh, at this pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. He knows that it's, it's about time to depart from this world and return to the Father. He's been talking about it in chapter 12, that the Son of Man has to be lifted up, and he's talking about his crucifixion. And if he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Well, he knows what that means. He knows he's about to be crucified and that it's about time for him to depart from this world in terms of the incarnation, in terms of him being here physically present among us. Uh, he's going to depart and return to the Father. And John tells us that not only had he loved his own all throughout, but that he loved them to the end. We see this pattern in John's gospel, and it's evident in the other gospels as, as well. You might think, this is the evening before uh, his crucifixion. You might think at this point, Jesus is trying to get his head in the right space to face what is coming. We know from the gospels that the cross was daunting to Jesus, that he struggled with it. He sweat drops of blood over it. And, and it was an anguishing struggle for him to face and stare down the challenge of the cross. You would think if there's ever a moment in Jesus' life where he would be justified in saying, you know what, guys, I need a minute for myself. This would have been that moment. But John says, you know what, he never switched. He never stopped focusing on us. He never stopped loving us to the very end. 
Consider all that Jesus is doing in these final hours, not just instructing his disciples and teaching them and preparing Peter for his own failure and letting him know ahead of time, I know you're going to mess up. Uh, All that is coming, even during the crucifixion when women are, are by the roadside wailing over his death, he says, don't cry for me. I'm more concerned about you than about me. Even as he hangs on the cross, he has time and attention to uh, offer salvation to another criminal hanging next to him. He has time to instruct John to take care of his mother. He never stopped doing what he came to do, which was love the world. He never turned inward. And during that dinner... And John is going to mention this several times, and next week we'll get more into that. But uh, Judas has already made up his mind. Apparently this thing with Mary anointing his feet kind of put him over the edge, and he just resolved, you know what, I know the Jews, uh, Jewish leadership want to kill him. I'll hand him over to them. I will deliver him over to them. So the devil's already put that in his heart. In his, he's already made the decision, made the conviction within that this is what he's going to do. And Jesus knows that. He knows that the moment of his arrest is, is just around the corner. He also knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He's just been talking about the Son of Man being glorified. And that's a reference to Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days, God the Father, God Almighty is sitting on his throne in glory and he is approached by one coming on the clouds, the Son of Man. And to him the Ancient of Days confers the eternal kingdom that he will reign forever and ever. So if God who is king, God the Father who is king of all creation confers to God the Son his kingdom... What is he giving to him? He's giving him everything. The kingdom of the Father is all that exists. There is nothing that falls outside of that. So Jesus knows what's about to happen. On the cross, he is going to complete redemption and he is going to buy back what sin has taken from God. He is going to purchase back for himself creation itself. And it is no longer going to belong to sin and death. It is going to belong to him. And Paul talks about this, how the Father has given all things to Jesus and it is necessary that he reign until every enemy is brought to heal. Christ is about to reach that moment where he, by giving his life on the cross, is going to reestablish himself as king over all creation. And the Father is going to confer to him all things. And he is going to reign gloriously and establish himself as redeemer, king over all creation. And he's about to return to the right hand of the Father to rule on high. Okay, so we've set the stage. This is what Jesus knows. So knowing this, what does he do? Knowing that that's the moment that he is about to ascend to his throne, what does he do? Verse 4, he rises from the dinner and sets aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then he pours water into the wash basin 
And he began to wash the feet of the disciples and wipe them with the towel he had wrapped around himself. That's not what you expect that sentence to go on to say, right? Knowing that the Father has given him all things and that he's about to go back. This is what he does. It's interesting that they use the plural. John uses the plural here. He set aside his garments. Now, if he had used the singular, you might think he's just setting aside like his outer cloak or something. But uh, using the plural, it may be that Jesus strips down to his loincloth the way a slave would and sets about serving the disciples, washing their feet. Now, culturally at this time, that was an accepted thing. We don't do that. I mean, you might go to get a pedicure, but that's more of a pampering type thing. Uh, and normally, uh, you're embarrassed enough that you try to wash your feet before you go out there. You don't just come in with sandals and dirt and everything. You, it's, it's more of a massage, you know, it's fancy. Well, this wasn't what was going on back then. Roads were dusty. You, you walked with sandals uh, and... Uh, you accumulated dust from the road. So when you went into a home, it was normal for them to offer you water to, to freshen up your feet before you traipsed in all the dirt from outside. And if it was a wealthy home, it would be normal for this service to be provided by a slave. For them to wash off your feet as you came into the home. But even Jewish custom found that having to wash another human being's feet was so demeaning that they didn't allow even a Jewish slave to do that. You couldn't ask a Jewish slave to wash your feet. It was considered too demeaning. You had to ask the Gentile slave to do that. So I want us to, to culturally understand what Jesus is doing here. Not only is he adopting the position and service of a slave, but not even a Jewish slave would as low as Jesus is doing right now. He is offering the service of a slave, washing their feet with this towel that he has wrapped around himself. You might wonder how the disciples felt about this. I have, you know, as sometimes in, in certain settings in the church, you might have been involved in a foot washing ceremony and I've discovered uh, it's really hard for the people whose feet you're washing they they really hate it <laughs> I've had people that just balked and refused to, to allow that um, so I'm, I'm sure that the disciples had some thoughts about this right uh, Peter becomes their spokesperson verse 6 so he comes to Simon and let's use the name Jesus gave him. Peter tells him, Lord, you intend to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, You do not know what I am doing now, but you will know after these things. So when Jesus comes to Peter, Peter, Peter can't just sh shut up about it. It's, you actually think you're going to do this to me? What are you thinking? No way. And Jesus, as he often does, doesn't actually answer the question asked. He says what needs to be heard. He says, you don't get it. 
You don't know what I'm doing. But take heart. You will later. You'll understand later. You don't understand right now, but you will understand later. I wonder how many times in life we face moments like this where what Jesus is doing doesn't match up at all with what we expected or wanted him to do. And, and in those moments where we don't understand, God, what in the world are you doing? I think the kind answer of Jesus here, you don't get it right now? Guess what? It doesn't matter. You're fine. You don't have to get it right now. When it's time to get it, you will. You'll know later. Now, I don't know that we can turn this into a universal promise that every doubt we ever have, God is going to resolve to our liking. That we will always understand the answer to every question we have at a particular moment. I don't know that Jesus is promising us that, but I think the pattern holds that oftentimes when we are confronted with God doing things we're not understanding, God says, you know what, you don't have to understand it right now. If understanding is necessary, trust me that I will provide the understanding when it's needed. If it's needed. It's an invitation to trust. To, to walk in, in a trust knowing that I may not understand what God is up to, but I know God is working out of love. He is working for my good. <coughs> and that's enough. <clears throat> I don't have to understand what Jesus is doing to my liking. And here's another thing I've discovered in my own life. You know, there are things that I wanted to know at a particular moment in my life that if Jesus had just said, well, this is what I'm teaching you, I wouldn't have understood it. I wouldn't have gotten it. There are things that only hardship have opened my eyes to. Only suffering has opened my eyes to certain things. There are things I know now that when I was learning them, I didn't understand what God was up to. But God is faithful, and he guides us through this. Peter was appalled. I think more than just uncomfortable. He thought it was an abomination what he was doing. Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Son of God, and he should not be stripped down to a loincloth with a towel wrapped around him at my feet, washing feet. That is not what the glorious Son of God should be doing. He is too worthy. He is too great, too important for that. If anything, this should be the other way around. If somebody has to wash anybody's feet, I should be washing Jesus' feet. I'm the disciple. He's the master. I'm the slave. He's the owner. Jesus told him, you don't get it now, but you will. Think about your own life. How have you dealt with moments in your life where you didn't understand what Jesus was doing? Let's keep reading verse 8. Peter tells him, you will never, ever wash my feet. Not for eternity. 
Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter says, no, no, just no. In Greek, it's the double negative. You will no, not wash my feet. And then he adds the, the idiom in Greek for eternity, into the age. Yeah, not just, not now, not, not now, not ever. This is never going to happen, Jesus. But Jesus answered very sternly to him, if I don't do this, pack your bags. Get out of here. You and I are done. I've got nothing for you. You've got nothing for me. We are not happening if you don't let this happen. That's pretty harsh. Those are strong words. Which tells me that what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples is so important that we can't even have a relationship with him unless we get it. So what is he trying to teach them? I think in Peter's mind, this is the natural order of things. The lesser serves the greater. Jesus is greater, therefore I serve him. And what that means is, I'm not as important as him, I'm not as glorious or great as him, but I bring something to the table that he has need of. And I serve his needs, however uh, minor they may be, but I, I provide some kind of a service to him, and in return he loves me and takes me under his wing and makes me a part of his kingdom. That's the way every Jew in the first century thought of it. They didn't agree about anything else. Everybody had their own idea of how you needed to do this. But there's one thing they all agreed about. God is not going to send his Messiah until we get our act together. And every group, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes, every group had their version of what they all had to do to get God happy enough with them to send the Messiah. Guess what? They never got their act together and God sent the Messiah anyway. The first half of the Gospel of John is clear evidence that the Jews were not worthy of the Messiah when God sent him. They fought him tooth and nail every step of the way and ultimately they will crucify their own Messiah. So it had nothing to do with worth. It had nothing to do with Israel providing some service to God that made him beholden to them and forced him to send the Messiah. But that's what Peter has been raised on. That's the way every religion in the world works. <clears throat> it is a system by which we can earn things from God or the gods. That's why people love religions, because it puts us in the driver's seat. What does God need me to do so that I can then in turn say, I've done my part, you do yours. That's the way religion works. And you do all these back-breaking burdens and works and all these hard things to do, and then you look up to God and say, okay, I'm waiting. You live up to your end of the deal. And I think Peter is, is still not understanding that our relationship with God is not a reciprocal relationship. 
It's not an exchange. I don't give God my service and he gives me back his blessing, his forgiveness, his love. What Jesus is trying to help Peter understand is that the only thing you have to offer me is dirty feet. That's all you have to put before me. All we have to offer Jesus is our need. He doesn't need anything we've got. He already owns everything. And we don't make him, his life better by being virtuous. We make our lives better by being virtuous. We don't make anything uh, more convenient to him by our service. He is the one who meets our need. He is the one who serves us. And we are the recipients. And in that sense, our relationship with God is completely one-sided. I think we need to get that. If Jesus told Peter, unless you get this, you and I have nothing to talk about, I think he means that to every one of us. We've got to get that. There is never a thing you're going to do that is going to make God beholden to you in any way. (coughs) The only thing you have that God is interested in is your need. (coughs) Peter said Jesus would never wash his feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. By the way, this whole thing of washing, it should become obvious that Jesus is not talking about dust and sweat. He's talking about sin. He's talking about all the things, the shameful, base, embarrassing things you and I do and think and are that need forgiveness. Just said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Why do you think it's so hard for us to receive what Jesus actually came to give us? Let's keep reading verse 9. Simon Peter tells him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and head. Jesus tells him, the one who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you all are clean, although not all of you. For he knew who was handing him over. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter says, okay. I mean, I'm I'm not ready to walk away from Jesus. So he backpedals quickly from his never, ever into eternity. Uh, He says, okay, if you have to wash my feet, at least soften the blow. Wash my hands and head to do something that a friend might do for me, not just a slave. He, He wants to do anything he can to protect the fantasy that his relationship with Jesus is in some way a mutually beneficial one. That they're kind of partners in this. And Jesus refuses. No. I'm going to do for you what you need done. 
He uses hygiene as the way to illustrate the point. Obviously, they had, I'm sure they had all visited a mikvah uh, in preparation for the Passover feast and had taken a ritual bath. So they were clean. It's just there was some dust on their feet. So he says, there's no need to do anything else. Your need is what you are so ashamed of. Your need is what I'm going to deal with. And his need was not for Jesus to validate his understanding of their relationship. That needed to change. His need was to understand that Jesus had come for him. And he does mention that there's one among them who hasn't bought into this, one who has not come to genuine faith. Judas is going to betray him. He wanted to cling. Peter wanted to cling to this notion that he had something to offer Jesus, that there was some kind of reciprocity in their relationship. But all he really had to offer him was his need, his need of cleansing. In what ways have you done the same thing? Tried to establish your relationship with Jesus as one of mutual benefit. Continue, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and put his garments back on and had reclined once more, he told them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak well, for that I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also are obligated to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example so that just as I have done to you, so also you should do. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his Lord, nor is an envoy greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So I've been talking about this Christian service. So if I have nothing to give God... If he needs nothing from me, then what are we talking about when we talk about Christian service? How does that work? Aren't we called to serve? Well, yeah. It's just that sometimes we get it backwards. Here's the completely wrong way to think of Christian service. Christian service are the things we do in obedience to Christ that maintain his favor on our lives and secure for us his blessings. That's the completely backwards way of understanding things, and it's absolutely wrong. So Jesus is explaining to them how it actually works. I am teacher. I am Lord. I, and he's not, by serving as a slave, he's not somehow given up on who he is. He knows full well that he's the one who's going to instruct these disciples in how they should go about living their lives. He is God Almighty and their Lord, and he is going to care for them and guide them, and, and they owe themselves to him. All of that is true. So what's he up to? Well, he says, uh, pay attention. See what I just did to you? I, the teacher, the Lord, the head honcho. I washed your feet. I served you as a slave. 
When you have received from me this service, it places you under obligation. Paul talked about this. I am indebted to the world. It's not that the world had ever done anything for Paul. It's that Christ, in redeeming Paul, had placed such a burden on him that he felt he had to give it to the whole world. If I have washed your feet, your obligation now is to do the same for one another. I've given you an example. Do just as I have done to you. This means that Christian service can only happen after we have been served by Christ. So it inverts the order of what I was saying before. We don't do service and then gain something from God. We don't give up peanut butter for Lent and then God has to do something great for us. It's the other way around. God meets us at our point of need. He cleanses us. He forgives us. And once he has done that to us, we now have something of worth to share. And guess what it is? It's Jesus himself. So I don't generate God's favor. I receive it and share it. Christian service is us giving from the overflow of what we have received. We might say, well, but that's too demeaning. I'm better than that. Well, Jesus made sure he took that one away from us, right? Are you more important than me? If, if you're going to tell me this kind of service is beneath you, if extending the kind of sacrificial love that I have given to you to somebody unworthy is beneath you, does that mean that you're somehow more important than I am? I gave it to you. What do you mean it's beneath you? And so many times in Christian service, tragically, horrendously, it becomes a matter of pride. As though we had anything to be proud about to begin with. We cannot give anything that is worth anything unless God has given it to us first. And if you're only sharing what has been given to you, why boast about it? It's not yours to begin with. But this is where the most supernatural things that happen in Christian service happen. This is where forgiveness happens. We can forgive in a way nobody else can because we have been forgiven as nobody else has been forgiven. We can love as nobody else can love because we have been loved as nobody else has been loved. We give something that is so far beyond us when we give as we have received. And in case we ever think something is beneath us, Jesus says, is a slave greater than his Lord? I don't think that's the way it works. 
How about an envoy? You, you have a king and he sends an ambassador out to communicate something to a, a distant nation. Uh, who's more important, the ambassador or the king who sent him? And Jesus, knowing that he is Lord and God and teacher and the highest in every possible way, deliberately modeled for us taking the lowest position possible to, to take away from us any uh, balking or any stepping away and saying, no, that's beneath me. <coughs> We're not greater than him. <coughs> now, we talk a lot about blessing. There's a popular song a couple of years back, uh, The Blessing, that people love play a lot. I love it. It's a great song. We talk about God blessing our, our work and the labor of our hands and our families and all these things and we, we throw around this term of blessing and Jesus explains to us what constitutes actually receiving God's blessing. You might think that receiving God's blessing is kind of like Solomon. You get really rich and have a lot of uh, prestige. Everybody likes you and you're very powerful and have a lot of money. That's the blessing. The blessing is to have a really nice car, really nice house, a great family, a bunch of kids. That's the blessing. Everybody has good health. Nothing bad's happened to anybody. That's the blessing. Jesus says that's not the blessing at all. The blessing comes in doing what he's just told us to do. The blessing comes when we have not only received from Christ, but we have given what we have received to others. That's when the blessing is complete. So it's not enough to know, okay, that's the way it works. I'm not giving God anything. He's giving to me. Okay, I understand it. Jesus says, well, it's not enough to understand it. Do it. And when you do it, that's when you receive the blessing. You know why? Because when I don't, like a, a spoiled child, drink and hoard everything just for me, me, me. And when I stop thinking of myself as a vessel to contain the blessings of God and think of myself as a conduit through which God's blessing can flow. Not only does my life become a blessing to those around me, because now I actually have something to give that people need. Jesus. But in the giving of these gifts, I think that's the process we call salvation. In the giving of the gift, our heart begins to be conformed to the heart of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to uh, see the glory of Christ attached to us. As we surrender to it, as we become conduits, not containers, the blessing comes in giving it. Jesus said we can only serve once he has served us. And the only thing we have to give is what he has given us. How should this shape our approach to service as Christians? I've been convicted this year, and this is something I've known for a long time, 
that the only thing I have to share that's worth anything is Jesus. And sometimes I don't really pursue him much. I'm too busy serving him. That ever happened to you? What are you going to give if you have no Jesus to give? Let's finish. Verse 18. I do not speak regarding all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. But it is so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I tell you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Again, we have this mention of Judas, and again, we'll talk more about that next week. But Jesus is telling his disciples that Judas is about to betray him. And, and like I said, he'll talk more about it. But, and he says, this is actually fulfilling scripture. There is a Psalm of David, Psalm 41, where he talks about sinning. And uh, he's talking to God about how people he'd never expected turned against him. People who he... Uh, broke bread with invited them to his table and broke bread with them even people like that who were like a brother to him have turned against him now, Jesus obviously hasn't sinned it's not the same exact situation but it was in God's plan that Jesus's life would track with David's life in some very important things and this idea of David having been betrayed by a very intimate friend God saw fit for that to be a part of Jesus' experience too, and he allowed for it. Jesus didn't have to include Judas in the 12, but he did because uh, he knew that it was important as Messiah that he experience betrayal as well as we do. So, in that sense, in a typological connection between him and David, it fulfills the scripture. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll realize. I'm not hanging on a cross because somehow I misread things. Somehow I misunderstood. Somehow I was mistaken. The cross is not my failure. It is exactly what I came to do. And you'll understand when you look back and say, wow, and Judas' betrayal is, is going to catch them all off guard. That Nobody sees it coming. When they look back, they're going to say, Oh, wow, Jesus knew all along. That night when he was washing all our feet, even as he washed Judas' feet, he knew. And he told us. And Jesus says, I want you to know this so that when the time comes, you will recognize who I am. I am God Almighty. I know the future from the, from the present. I know the end from the beginning. I am. And then finally he summarizes for them what their life is to be. As they go out and give what he has given to them, those who receive them are not actually receiving them. They're receiving Christ. I'm reminded, I had to preach at my parents' funeral. And I'm reminded of something I said in that funeral. I'm convinced of it to this day. I said, the only reason people love my parents so much is Jesus. It was what Jesus was up to in their lives that led to the kind of service that transformed so many lives around them. 
so when this is the way we're serving, not earning brownie points, not checking off boxes, but actually just giving what God gave to us, when that's how we're serving, people aren't receiving the service of some guy. They are receiving the service of Jesus Christ himself. And if so, they're receiving the service of the Father who sent the Son to redeem the world. Pride comes in many guises. Often we'll pursue piety or the things of God or philanthropy, great acts of service thinking that through hard work and commitment we can contribute something of worth, leave a mark on this world. That was Peter's understanding. He may not have been the best or the brightest, but darn it, he was going to try harder than anybody. He thought he had some service to render to Jesus, and Jesus forced him to come to grips with the truth. All you have that I need is your need. All we can offer him is our own helplessness, our dirty selves. The good news is that God loves us anyway. He doesn't care that we're dirty. We don't have to strive to earn God's love. He has already given it. We were talking about Ramadan and this heartbreaking reality that people think they have to deprive themselves and struggle to somehow earn God's favor. It, it breaks my heart that they don't know that God loves them already. That he's not waiting for them to do anything, to earn anything from him. And the same is true for every one of us. He has stooped low to serve our dirtiest, most shameful need. The sins he's dealing with in your life are the ones that you're, you're so ashamed of, you will never speak them out loud to anybody. He knows. And he's come to even deal with those. The only true Christian service that exists is what happens when we Christians take the service we have received from Jesus and give that to others. This service is the blessing, for in the giving we are transformed. We are molded into the glorious shape of Jesus. And when we give what Jesus gives to us, people aren't receiving us, they're receiving Jesus. And the Father who sent him. It's been a while since we've done this, but I want us to have a time of response. I'd like to ask the musicians to come forward. We have a couple of people, uh, I think four people who are going to come up here. So if y'all would make your way to the front now, let's all stand. What I like about an invitation or a response time is that sometimes God lays something on our hearts that we need to do something about. And this gives you an opportunity in worship to do something about what God has told to you. And these people here are just like you. Uh, they're just here to pray with you. So if you'll come, if God's laid some kind of a commitment on your heart, a decision you need to make, um, 
or you just need prayer for something. Uh, they're here to pray with you. Just share with them briefly what God's put on your heart and let them pray with you as we have this time of response. Come while we sing.